0: this hayseed from Kansas who'd been riding a, an Indian cowpony, won the Nationals and and on the gold medal team at the Pan Am. And now suddenly I'm a big deal at, a, at age 22, uh, where six weeks or six months before that I was no kind of big deal. So I've always had a little bit of a cynical attitude about about your success or, or failure in the horse world um, and also a, a heightened uh, appreciation of the fact that you get where you get based on your horse. And it's, uh, there are a lot of good riders out there and there were a lot of good riders at the team at that time but suddenly having a horse like Kilkenny I was, I was, uh, a combi- we were a combination to be reckoned with now.
1: Welcome to Practical Horseman's podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show, which runs every other week, is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Sandy Olinick, and this week's episode is with eventing icon Jim Wofford. When we first decided to dive into the podcast world, Jim Wofford was on our must-have list of guests for several reasons. First, his column, Cross Country with Jim Wofford, has been running in Practical Horseman magazine for more than 13 years. He's legendary in the eventing world as a rider. He competed on three Olympic teams in 1968, 1972, and 1980, winning two team silver medals and one individual silver medal. He also rode in two world championships in 1970 and 1978, winning bronze individual and team medals. He won a team gold medal in the 1967 Pan American Games and captured the U.S. National Championships five times on five different horses. As a coach, Jim has had countless students on U.S. Olympic, World Championship, and Pan American Games teams. These include David and Karen O'Connor and Kim Severson. Today, he is also a much sought-after clinician. When not teaching, Jim is a prolific author, a historian, and an outdoorsman. But all of those accolades tell only part of the reason we wanted to speak with Jim. In my opinion, there is no better person at telling a story than Jim Wofford. In this week's podcast, he brings alive the history of the U.S. equestrian team, and he explains where some of today's training practices, like riders going overseas to compete, started. He talks about the greats of the sport, including many mentors, such as his father, Colonel John W. Wofford, Lars Sederholm, Jack LaGoff, Bert DeNemothy, and Bill Steinkraus, and Jim shares stories of the two great horses in his life, Kilkenny and Kerouich. Jim does all of this with his wry sense of humor. I laughed out loud at his description of how badly Jack LaGoff wanted to win medals, which is near the end of this podcast. Jim also reveals a more personal side, talking about how he stopped riding for a while after losing his father when he was just 10 years old how he met his future wife, Gail, at the age of 13 and knew she was the one, and how Kilkenny, whom he rode in the 68 and 72 Olympics, is still buried at his farm, Fox Covert Farm, in Upperville, Virginia. Next week, we will run a bonus podcast, part two of my conversation with Jim, where we talk about the areas in riding he found easy and those he struggled with, how he handled setbacks, key issues he sees amateur riders having, and rider fitness, as well as advice he would give young professionals in the industry. Now, let's jump right into our conversation with Jim, who begins by talking about early life on his family's farm in Kansas.
0: I was was born on a farm in uh, Milford, Kansas, which is west of Kansas City. It is not the Kansas that you think of. Uh, when you mention Kansas, they think of you know rolling fields of grain stretching on all the way out to the Rocky Mountains. That part of Kansas exists, but I live in the uh, eastern part of Kansas, very, very uh, very, very wooded, flat plateaus with deep ravines, and a limestone formation there that goes through it, I think, 850 feet above sea level. it 's about a four- foot thick band of white rock. Made of limestone, and uh, that's the name of the farm, Remrock Farm. And we had uh, a horse farm, a cattle farm, a hay and oats farm. We had ducks, we had pigs, we had geese, we had chickens. My mother raised Irish Wolfhounds. At one point, we had twenty-six Irish Wolfhounds on the place. Uh, I was raised with animals. I think is the short. That's the short version. I never knew a time that I didn't know how to ride. I was literally raised on horseback. Um, unfortunately, my father died when I was 10, so I got my early, very, very early riding instruction from him, uh, but he passed away uh, at, at a fairly early age. And so I, uh, I continued my education with our stable manager there, who was a, a man named Jonas Urbenskis, who, interestingly enough, went on to be Kim Severson's first coach. Uh, which I think is just one of those funny little details. You know, they, they t- there's a, an apocryphal story about when, when God created man and woman, he had a rough draft first. So he made, he made Adam, and then after he did, the, he had practiced, then he made Eve. And I, I laughed and I said, Jonas was a little bit like that too, <laughs> in, in, a, in a less religious sense. Um, I, I went to a one room country schoolhouse. For eight years, I'm probably one of the last people around that have had that experience. We had electricity. we did not have um, uh, a furnace in the in the schoolhouse, so we heated it with a Ben Franklin stove and that was a um, that was a, a rite of passage that you got big enough to lift the coal bucket and carry the coal in for the the stove a couple of times a day during the winter. So I went from there uh that the most we ever had at that at that school uh Pleasant View School District number 3 uh the most we ever had there was 14 kids one teacher I had the same girl in my grade uh Edith Turnbull all of the way uh all of the way one through 8 and uh, I went from there To Culver Military Academy, 850 boys, and a very accelerated um, academic program. Culver didn't get rated along with Andover and Choate and Exeter because it was military, but it was in that league at that time. So I I hit the fast track in a hurry. and I spent four years there. The reason I went there is because of the Black Horse Troop. I could ride every day at Culver. Uh, I was never that interested in academics. I, I I eventually spent almost twenty years in school, one way or another, as I call it, incarcerated. Um, and um, I I never I never spent a day that I didn't want to be outdoors with animals instead.
1: So, Jim, your childhood home was near Fort Riley. Can you speak a little bit about that and those years?
0: Fort Riley is an important place in the history of horsemanship here in this country because from about 1920 to 1949, it was the home of the cavalry school. And what that means is that every officer in the army went to school to learn the cavalry way of riding. Um uh, this, this was true even of the West Point graduates. My father was a West Pointer uh, class in 1920. And, of course, all of the officers at that time were taught to ride. Uh, everybody thinks of General George Patton as being a great rider, but Eisenhower, Marshall, Bradley, all of these guys of that era, they were taught how to ride. They were taught to ride the Army way. You know, there was an army way, that, and, and there was a right way and a wrong way, and you did it the army way. Um, and so Fort Riley, the point is, Fort Riley was a big deal in the life of the cavalry officers. And my mother and father in the late 30s bought Rimrock Farm uh, knowing that it backed up against the military reservation. So growing up, I had about 100,000 acres of grass, to gallop over. Um, and you know, it's hard to, it's hard to think of that, uh, that much space these days when people live on half acre lots. Uh, but if you had 10,000 horses at the post, you need a lot of space, uh, to move them around in there and practice the maneuvers and so on that they might have to use. Um, and so Fort Riley was a great place to grow up. I've I've talked about what a menagerie I I grew up in. My father always said that the reason we didn't have an elephant there was my mother had never been to an elephant auction because we we had everything else there was in the world. Uh, the The cavalry mechanized in 1949, uh, and that see, you mentioned earlier that my father was was then. Ha- having been an Olympic athlete himself, then was the first president of the civilian t- uh, f- organization, which we know as the USCT, and he was the first president of that. And he coached the jump sh- jumping and eventing. Uh, both of them got bronze medals in 1952, which I think is a pretty good trick, uh, because there were there were no uh, cal- there were no officers in the eventing team, uh, and then the the show jumping team was made up of two civilians and one officer. That was Bill Steinkrauss, Arthur McCashan were the civilians, and Johnny Russell, who would feature in my story again later on. He was a student of my father's, and later on I would be a student of his uh, 25 years later. So the, the horse world is a small place, as we know. I would then go on to, to point out that although now uh, the, the Olympic effort was now going forward, it was going to be all civilian, but we were able to use the facilities at Fort Riley. And so for a short period of time, after the Army no longer had horses, we still had horses at Fort Riley and at my family farm at Rimrock Farm because my farm also was uh, training ground for the riders in 5152 before they went to Europe it's interesting that they knew that they needed european exposure before they went to the Helsinki Olympics in 1952 uh, because in 1920 uh in the first sort of sort of olympics after world war 1 the us cavalry got their brains beat out Uh, because they were unused to to competing under foreign rules. And the uh, then-major Chamberlain came home and wrote a memo saying that the next time around, uh, the, the U.S. Army, U.S. Cavalry had to plan for that. And so I smile a little bit when people now are saying, gee, do we really need to send all these riders abroad and pay for all these tours? Well, yeah, we've been doing it for 100 years now. And the reason we've done it for 100 years is because you have a better chance uh, if you have been exposed to those those conditions.
1: And your brothers rode as well and were quite successful. Could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, tur- after Daddy it turned into quite a horsey family. My brother Jeb was on the eventing team in 1952. Uh, in 1956, my brother Warren was the reserve rider. And notice the way I said that. In the 50s, the reserve rider was the reserve to all three teams. Because of course, well, if you think about it, the old cavalry officers—they were expected to be able to ride in all three disciplines. And we have two, we have two officers who uh, got medals in two disciplines at the same Olympics. Harry Chamberlain got got an individual silver jumping and team gold at uh, at the thirty-two Olympics, and then Frank Henry got a. Let me see. He got a. He got a team gold, individual silver, and uh, team bronze in dressage. So... In those days, they didn't think that was such a big deal. Of course, an expert horseman could could ride across the board. Well, the point is, Warren was 19. He wasn't going to make our team, but he had already done some eventing, and the dressage was still fairly rudimentary. They could have put him on a dressage horse and taught him the test, and he probably could have gotten through it with one or two middle errors. Um, And so at age 19 or 20, whatever he was, he was the reserve rider in 1956 in Stockholm. He there met a uh, young uh, English girl named Dawn Pailthorpe, who was the reserve rider to the British show jumping team. And uh, they started dating. They got married and they uh, stayed in England. My brother Warren lived there all his life. And Dawn rode in 1960 on Hollandia. Hollandia had been owned by my mother in 1952, and that was Bill Steinkraus' first Olympic uh, horse, and, and a fabulous horse, too. Wow. Uh, so there were no Woffords competing in 1964. And then I got out of college. I didn't really get out of college because the the old joke is that the four years of college were the best years of my life. All seven of them. That, that was me because it, it took me a while to graduate. Uh, and I'll get into that in a minute, but I, I, um, uh, my sister-in-law rode in 60, and then I rode again in 68, 72, and 80 on the alternate Olympic team, and then I was reserved in 1984. Uh, and in the meantime, one of my cousins, Bill Wofford, uh, was a leading steeplechase jockey uh, here in the States for a while. So yes, it's a horsey family.
1: Can you talk a little bit about some of uh, the special horses from your childhood? Uh, what What were they like?
0: Well, I have a picture in my library of me at about age two or three, uh, barefoot, no helmet, on a Shetland pony named Mary Legs. And Mary Legs had been the Shetland pony that taught all four Wofford children how to ride. And we got her to the horse shows by the simple expedient of holding a carrot and walking into the back seat of the station wagon. And she would walk in there, we'd pull the, the front seats forward, and she would walk in there and just stand. And then when we got to the horse show, we would hold the carrot out the, and she would walk out the other door and that was her transport there. Uh and uh, my brother succeeded in getting her upstairs once, unbeknownst to anyone. And he he led Mary Legs upstairs, and it took my father and two enlisted men to get her back down because they don't like, they don't like going back down the stairs very much. Uh, but that was Mary Legs, and I I remember jumping my first cross rail with her uh, because it was in a stock saddle. My brothers thought that would be funny to lead little Jimmy. Uh, there was quite an age gap. I was nine years younger than my next sibling. So of course I took a fair amount of harassment from them. Um, and they, they led me over a cross rail. And of course I, I lurched around and I hit my nose on the saddle horn of the little Western saddle and bled like the Dickens. And of course they laughed at me and told me it was just a bloody nose and to shut up. Right. So that was, that was a family attitude toward minor injuries, uh, and as I grew up again, I I graduated to a family, a pony now. But Tiny Blair was a fourteen two chestnut, and he he again taught everybody the ropes. We could jump small courses on him. He he fox hunted. Uh, my brother Warren was a whipper in to the cavalry school foxhounds, and um, you know he was just a just a wonderful wonderful family friend. In the meantime, my mother had a breeding program at at Rimrock Farm. Uh, And so we had a lot of young thoroughbred stock that we rode. Uh, And I, you know, I took part in that. She had bred two of the uh, horses that were on the 1952 eventing team. One of them ridden by Lauren Huff's father, Champ Huff rode one of my mother's horses. And um, uh, Jeb rode another horse named Benny Grimes. And then the reserve horse was a horse called Emerald Christ. And uh, he, was a revo- he was a reserve. He was probably the most talented of them, but he was just a little bit suspect. He could stop. And the other two horses were, they were real thoroughbreds. They wouldn't stop uh, until they, you know, until they just dropped dead. They were wonder, wonderful goers, typical, classic horses. Uh, the age of the horses, average age in 1952 on that team was seven. And the average age of the riders, There was a three-man team, and it was all men. The average age of the team riders was 20, 19, 20, and 21. So I would like to have talked to Daddy about that because that must have been some hair raising stuff you know getting those young boys corralled and taking them to europe and keeping them out of trouble and and schooling the young horses there uh i know my my brothers talked about uh, um they showed the horses along with the show jumpers they would go in the very low speed classes and jump in those classes as just as part of their training um so again you know a lot of the things that we're doing today have historical uh resonance you know there are reasons that we do stuff like that uh and that was part of it so that that was That was my horse sort of background. Uh, And then, as I said, I rode at Culver for four years at the Black Horse Troop. And you pretty much, at Culver, you rode anything that you were assigned to ride. And some of them, we weren't paying a lot for these horses. I think they were paying $500 a horse for horses between between 15 and 16, too, and black in color, dark brown or black. And some of them were really, really nice horses, and some of them were just plugs, and, you know, you just threw your leg up. Then I, I by this time in 1958, I met my, my future wife, Gail, age 13. Uh, I was at 13 at the time, and decided she was the girl I was going to marry. And yes, yes, the moment I saw her, I knew I knew that was it. I did feel the ground move slightly uh and i had I had an epiphany that this was this I didn't know where my life was going, but I knew it was going to be with her so i point being, I went to the University of Colorado because the the only place in the country. Outside of Gladstone, New Jersey, where one could get instruction in venting, was in Denver, Colorado. Uh, there are two professionals out there, one in Colorado Springs, one in Denver, and they both were mad keen to train classic riders, uh, classic event riders. And so I went there and I studied with a man named Bill Bilwin, Zygmunt Bilwin, who's not, not very well known anymore for sure. Uh, and he had been he had been named to the Polish 1940 Olympic team. Well, of course, Hitler invaded Poland in the fall of 1939. So Bill never rode, but after the war, somehow he escaped, uh, the, the Russians coming back into Poland, found his way over here to this country and was working and living as a racehorse trainer in Denver. He was training racehorses and, um, I think, uh, talking to some of his friends, uh, I think he also was making a living uh, playing cards at night. I think he had a very, very good card sense, and he understood the odds about drawing to an inside straight in poker. I don't think he made mistakes like that. A uh, wonderful guy, very good horseman, very, uh, very deeply uh, imbued with the Italian riding system which was good for me because I had been brought up, of course, in the U.S. cavalry system, and that was based to a great extent on on the Italian uh, Caprilli's invention of the forward seat and his development of the forward seat. So I was quite comfortable with that. Uh, I spent four years there. Uh, Before I started, at about age 15, I went to the talent squad um, uh, screening trials in Denver. Bird and Nimothy went around the country and did five or six kind of two- or three-day clinics and just looking for good riders uh, because the team at this point, they had used the same four riders for quite a while, four or five riders. Now, uh, Bill Steinkraus, Frank Chippo, George Morris, Hugh Wiley, uh, and now they, they realized that they needed to, to de- develop more depth. And so Bert went around the country. Well, at age 15, I thought, what the hell? You know, I'm not, I'm a good rider. I'll go in there. And uh, Denimothy, with his usual bluntness, told me I had to start over. <laughs> so, so I did and learned something about dressage. And Bert came back uh, four years later in 1965 to Denver, and at that point I made the talent squad. And that was 12 event riders from around the country because they were starting now to specialize. 12 event riders and 12 show jumpers came to Gladstone for two weeks in August, and that was a fun time. And I've, I've looked back at the list of riders, and it is interesting how many of those kids uh, have stayed in the horse business. Anyway, um, after the after the talent search was over, I made that cut and rode in the nineteen sixty five fall championships, which were held in Geneseo, uh, New York, on a fifteen uh, three Rhone Appaloosa named Atos. That my mother had bought me, because we her breeding program she had stopped for a while, so we had a kind of a blank spot in our breeding program. I didn't have any homebreds to ride, and so uh, she had just picked up this horse, and this horse they knew he could jump because he had uh, been on the Nez Pierce Indian Reservation. And he'd bucked off all of the Indians. And so finally, um, some young lady saw him and fell in love with him and got him more or less broke to ride, taught him to jump, and then needed the money and sold him on. So there we were. Uh, and I rode him in the, the uh, national championships that fall was second and then went back to finish my final year of college, Uh, and to get married in this in this early summer of 1966 and then rejoined the team at Gladstone which was going into training for the world championships in 1966.
1: Um, Backing up a little bit how how and when did you know that you wanted to make riding and training your career was it something you just always knew you wanted to do?
0: As I said earlier, I grew up riding, uh, and I never, I, I went to horse shows and so on, but I never really truly thought about it. Uh, it I really, uh, I was really rocked, of course, by my father's death, because we had been quite close. If you look at pictures of him, uh, I, I came around the corner once in my young, in my younger days, age 20, at a horse show in Boots and Breeches. And I bumped into one of my father's uh, older friends and she shrieked because she she got a, a deja vu uh, look at me because apparently I walked walked that I'm the same size. I'm the same build, same hair. Uh, so I was a little bit of a clone. You know, I was forever paddling along behind him. And when he when he died, I stopped riding because I associated the stables and horses with him um, and went uh that was a you know a rocky period in the development of our pre-adolescent and then i got out of grade school age 13 and Jonas, basically the day after he just came over uh in the morning after breakfast and he took the book out of my hand because i was a real bookworm always have been and he said uh put the book down i need you at the stables because he was, he was not stupid. I, he could see what was going on, uh, and my mother had her own problems at that time. So uh, he just took me over to our stables, which was half a mile away, and said, "Those four horses are yours. You know, here's here's the saddle, there are the bridles. Uh, hang the tack here. There's a the pitchfork. There's a the muck basket. Get to work." And I just went back and started riding again, and. Um, I, I did a complete flip flop from, from enjoying my time completely with daddy to not riding at all, to getting back into it. And, um, uh, from that point on, it was never a question of if I would ride in the Olympics. In my mind, it was just a question of when that, that, that was what I was going to do. And that, that was it. I, I had a couple of, you asked me about when did I know I would make it my career. That, that's a different story because you, you, it, it's hard to believe these days, but we were all supposed to be amateurs to compete in, in the Olympics. And that was true up until the mid 80s. Until after the Los Angeles Olympic, the second Los Angeles Olympics, that everyone had to have something else. It was a very, uh, it was a very false notion of society, um, and it caused a lot of ethical quandary for those of the, that were involved in it because we had to live as a shamateur, most of us. Um, we had to find some way of making sort of a living in horses uh, that would at least pay for our ability to keep riding. So again, people talk about that a lot these days about how hard it is to make it in the horse business and these active riders that are all trying to get on their teams the, the jumping or dressage or eventing teams and they really uh, they devote themselves to that and they're just barely breaking even well there's nothing new about that either right that, that's been going on a long time
1: Two of your most well-known partners were Kilkenny and Kerouich. Can you tell us a little bit about what they were like and why they were so special?
0: I would say that, I mean, the 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 1968 Olympics, I, I did, uh, did qualify for that. I did ride there. But I rode a horse that my mother had bought in the spring of 67, a horse called Kilkenny. And he was... A member of the Irish eventing team in 1964 and was, I think, sixth individually there. He was very well placed with an Irish rider named Tommy Brennan, who's a famous, famous, more famous for show jumping than eventing, um, and competed as a show jumper also, uh, Olympic show jumper also. He rode that horse in 64. He there wasn't anything going on in the eventing world in 65. So he took him show jumping with the rest of his show jumping string. And at age seven, the horse jumped six foot six at Rotterdam uh, to win the Puissance. So he was Scopy, uh, And then he was back on the Irish gold medal world championship team in 1966, the first world championships, eventing world championships. And I saw him go there. I had read about him. Uh, in 1964 but I didn't make the trip to Tokyo so I, I saw him go and absolutely fell in love with him but had no concept no thought of ever being able to throw my leg over him uh, and what happened was in in the late fall of 1966 my brother was over there looking for show jumpers and he happened to call on Tommy Brennan and Tommy Brennan said well I've I've, I've got this show jumper and by the way uh kilkenny you know he's he's of no use to us really anymore because he's a bit of a four falter as a show jumper now uh, after his eventing experiences he's always a little bit flat um, but he would make a good schoolmaster he's uh what would he have been he was six seven eight uh so he was an eight year old and they thought, because, of course, the horses didn't last much past 10 or 12. So they thought, goodness gracious, he's done two badmintons, uh, because those were the prep events in the spring in 64 and 66. He'd done the Olympics and the World Championships. Well, there was no way the horse was going to stand up for, to much more. But he would make a good schoolmaster. And my brother was no dummy about this, about buying a horse for my age. He said, well, I'm not interested in that. And then he went home and called my mother and said, listen that that Roan Appaloosa is not going to get it done, which was true. Um, uh, but there's a horse over here that would be a good schoolmaster for Jimmy. And so uh, Mom said, well, you know, go ahead and buy him. So we bought Kilkenny. She bought Kilkenny for, imagine this, a horse that had been well-placed at the Olympics, gold medal team, around badminton twice. She bought him for $7,500. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people just shake their head when they hear that now uh, because it would cost more to fly the horse home these days than we paid for the horse. That, that tells you about the, the growth of the sport, the change in this, a, a one of the many changes in the sport. Uh, and Kilkenny, I didn't know about this until she called me one morning and said, well, uh, I bought Kilkenny for you to ride and he's landing at JFK today. So the next day got out of quarantine and and trot, came walked down the ramp and, and trotted a few steps and just stood and looked with the look of eagles um, and looked around and thought, well, you know, this is not a bad place. And I just loved him forever. He's still buried here at, at the farm. He's still here with me.
1: What was Kilkenny like to ride?
0: Uh, he was like he was like riding a Harley Davidson. I mean, you you started that motor and his working trot Almost had all four feet off the ground, uh, and he was he was a little more brave than he was sensible sometimes you know he he was he was a rocket he was a young man 's ride, uh, and you you pretty much had to just balance him and let him do his thing uh, because early uh, I mentioned i'd been raised on the Italian system well when I got to Gladstone in the mid sixties. Our coach there, uh, I mentioned that we had 12 riders trying out for the eventers, 12 for the show jumpers. The show jumpers were coached by the We were coached by a Hungarian named Stefan von Vichy, who was very Germanic in his approach and wanted a lot of control of the approach and so on, a lot of handwriting, a lot of timing. And I was really struggling with that. Uh and in the spring of sixty seven we were getting ready for the national championships and then hopefully the Pan Ams. And I wouldn't I wasn't gonna make it. And I was out practicing one day and a friend of my father's, uh General John Tupper Cole, called me over and said, Jimmy, come over here. And he just chewed me up one side, down the other, very quietly where no one could hear me. Uh, and basically what it was was sit still, shut up, and get out of his way. He knows his job. And I went, yes, sir. And and Stefan told me it was my turn, and I just galloped over and put my hands down, and uh, that just clicked. You know, that was what Kilkenny wanted, and that was the style that I was comfortable with. Right. Um, a little bit, I wouldn't say more aggressive, but certainly a little more free-flowing and a little bit more of a partnership than what was being taught at that time. Uh, and I, to to this day, that still is the way that I'm, I'm comfortable riding. So we went to the world championship, uh, sorry, to the national championships. And this hayseed from Kansas who'd been riding a, an Indian cow pony won the nationals. And and on the gold medal team at the Pan Am, and now suddenly I'm a big deal at age at age 22, uh, where six weeks or six months before that I was no kind of big deal. So I've always had a little bit of a cynical attitude about about your success or or failure in the horse world, um, and also a, a heightened. Uh, appreciation of the fact that you get where you get based on your horse and it's uh, there are a lot of good riders out there and there were a lot of good riders at the team at that time but suddenly having a horse like kilkenny i was i was uh, a combi- we were a combination to be reckoned with now
1: so jim uh you rode in the olympics in 1968 so uh what came next
0: well, you and I were talking about my career choices earlier, and in 1967, without really knowing it, I had, accum- I had just been going to college to keep from being drafted, and without really knowing it, I had accumulated enough credits to graduate, and so I, I kind of graduated, and they told my draft board, and my draft board talked to me, and the next thing I know, I'm drafted. In the fall, in the fall of 1967, after the Pan American Games, and of course, I've still got my sights set on going to badminton the next spring, and going to the Olympics in '68. Much less any career choices. I mean, my short-term goals were were very definite. But I was lucky enough to get into the Army sports program, and they said in those days every every male who was medically qualified. Uh, m- reaching the age of 18 was was eligible for the draft and you got a college deferment and during the, the Vietnam conflict uh, married men were exempt. If you were married um, when you got out of college you were exempt. Well unfortunately they removed that exemption the year before I graduated and so now I'm in the Army sports program the deal was if you just got drafted, you would spend two years in the Army, and they owned you, and then you would two, spend two years in the active reserve, and that meant you had to go for training once a month for, for a weekend a month, and then two weeks in the summer for the next two years, and then you were in active reserve. If, if you signed up, if you volunteered, you'd be in for three years, but then you'd be three years of inactive reserve. And here was the deal that they offered. They said, sign up. We know that you you are on the short list because of your Pan Am experiences. As long as you retain your eligibility, we will keep you on what the Army calls TDY, temporary detached duty and so you have to go through basic training you have to get drafted sorry we can't do anything about that but then as long as you retain that we will just put you on on you don't wear a uniform you don't check in you don't really have a commanding officer except this office at the Pentagon and uh just keep making the just keep making the cut and then after the olympics we will send you to Fort Sam Houston Texas which then was the the training ground for the U.S. Army modern pentathlon team. That was still paid for by the, the Department of Defense. And that was the training ground for the pentathlon for all five uh, of the the components of that sport, running, swimming, shooting, fencing, and riding. And I was to go there and be the stable sergeant and the assistant riding coach and that would be my next two years, and then I would be out of the Army. Well, that looked pretty good to me, because otherwise uh, my options were that I would probably wind up in Vietnam uh, being shot at uh, and shooting at people, which was not a very attractive prospect. So I made it all the way to uh, the Olympics, rode in the Olympics, came home. The Army really didn't know what to do with me at that point. Uh, because my my slot at uh, Fort Sam Houston hadn't opened up yet, they had they only had so many people that were assigned there, and being the army, they couldn't. If you didn't fit in that in that slot, then they would just. So they said, eh, "You're still on detached duty. Come back in a couple of weeks." And this was October, and so I just kept checking in every couple of weeks. Finally, uh, my orders came through in late December. And I got a couple of weeks off and then I went down and the the head coach and the head riding coach was now Colonel John Russell, who had been on my father's show jumping team. And we had been family friends, I mean, throughout the 50s and 60s. So here now, the spring of 1969, I'm working for Johnny Russell. And I spent two really wonderful years there in the Army, never wearing a uniform, boots and breeches all the time. and we kept in work 55 to 85 horses, depending on the time of year. And the pentathletes would come down every day. And basically, they jumped every day uh, because their their tests, they didn't have to be good horsemen or anything. They just had to hang on and be able to ride at speed over uh, a big show jumping course, big, meaning three-six. So these guys would come in, and they would come in. the The officer, they were all officers, uh, would come in out of OCS, had college graduates, and they would have usually either set an NCAA swimming record, or they could run like a deer. They had to have one of the one of the uh, athletic sports, and then we would teach them the three skill sports. And that's where I would come in because these kids would come in. They'd never sat on a horse before and they had 90 days to prove themselves, to learn to ride uh, a 3-6 course. And all of these horses, they were 3-6 schoolmasters and that I'll get back to that in a minute. But these young officers, they were under pressure uh, because it was a competitive environment anyway. And if they didn't make it, they would be, be leading a rifle company in Vietnam, uh, at which point their life expectancy was in days, not, not weeks or years, um, because the, that, that was a terrible, terrible conflict. So I learned to get p- people riding pretty well, pretty quickly. Uh, and Colonel Russell, had a, he was a magical, magical coach that way. He wasn't really a technical coach, uh, but he would, he would just say, come again, don't do that but he wouldn't say what that was and you'd come again he said no that's worse so you would reverse what you had done he said that's better and he taught entirely on on your feel what what did it feel like on the horse don't do that so you would try doing more of something else that's better and you would then you'd feel the improvement of course in the horse and the next thing you know these these young men would be they'd be galloping around pretty competently Now, obviously, they'd be making mistakes, and that's where we came in. I say we because we had about six or seven riders there, and these were good riders. Besides myself, we had uh, Rusty Stewart, who was a very good young show jumper. Uh, We had Mason Phelps there. We had a young man from Virginia who came in right behind me named Gould Brittle, uh, and he was from my area here in Virginia, and he was just a wonderful, natural horseman. Um, And we spent spent our week re-schooling the horses that had started stopping or ducking out or or running away. So it was a two-year for me. It was a two-year. I likened it to being a... Uh, a young psychiatrist or psychologist working in a state insanity hospital because all of these horses were were badly flawed in some way and you had to get them going again and you had to get them going quickly because they were going to go back into the show string within a few days so you were continually patching and repairing and uh, some of them we would just say oh come on get get going again and other horses were very tricky yeah i was in a continual process of of figuring horses out figuring out how to get them go right now because we didn't have any of this well we'll launch him for 30 days and then we'll trot him over cross rails and gymnastics none of that he had to go back in and jump three six again very quickly fabulous fabulous experience now at the during this time kilkenny um I had applied to the Army Sports Program. I said, he's still sound. We were, I don't know, third or fourth in the Nationals in 1969. I'd like to take him to the World Championships. And the the Army uh, Sports Program said, you know, what's your record? Are you qualified? Yeah, here, take take the summer off. So I lived in England uh, the summer of 1970, training with the man who had been our coach in 1968 who had replaced Stefan Vichy, a man named Major Joe Lynch. He was an Englishman uh, and a very, very shrewd horseman. And he had a training facility now. He had left the team. He didn't want to do that long term. Uh, but he had, he had coached us kind of just as a stopgap measure in 1968. And then in the spring of 70, I went over there and I stayed at his facility in England and got ready for the world championships, and I won the bronze medal. So now Kilkenny had done two Olympics and two world championships and was still sound. (coughs) So uh, I got out of the Army, as promised, in the fall of 70, and this was the first time that I really had to make a career decision um, because before that, the decision had been made for me. I mean, there. I didn't really have a choice in the matter. Now, in the spring of seventy-one, I had to uh, decide, and and Major Lynch by then had come back and had started the Morven Park Equestrian Center here in Virginia, and he offered. He, I was still remember, I was still supposedly an amateur, uh, but with no real visible means of support, and he said, "Come, I will make you the." Uh, director of administration at Morven Park at the equestrian center not the overall park but at the equestrian center and you will help me teaching in the morning and in return I'll help you train your horses and put them up which was a big deal the boarding the feed, feed and board and you do a little office work for us in the afternoon um, and so I had I had some place to go and poor Gail uh, picked up and you know, by now we had a family. Uh, one daughter had arrived, Hillary, and we moved back to Virginia in the spring of 1971. We've been here ever since. Um, and at this that was well, that was from Texas, from Fort Sam. Houston. And then um, my mother's breeding program had kicked in. I started having more horses than Morvin Park was interested in. I started needing more time. Than uh that for my own riding, than Morvan Park was willing to allow, so we came to an amicable um uh, you know change of direction, and I rented a barn over here, what's now Fox Chase, that big place that you see east of uh, middleburg Virginia uh I rented one stall at a time it was a it was just a boarding operation. And uh, it was a dollar a day bare bones for the stall, $30 a month. <laughs> and I, uh, uh, I'd had a couple of young riders talk to me about getting lessons, and I had seen how a working student uh, program worked in England. And so I just started uh, a working student program here, and in uh, probably 12 to 14 months, I had 35 horses there. It just exploded. And I could I could charge them for board, but I couldn't get paid to do lessons. I think that's the way it worked. So it was quite expensive to board, but the lessons were free. And that was how I uh stayed more or less an amateur. I mean uh Frank Chapo used to say, "Look, there are only two times your uh eligibility can be questioned. You can be protested if you show in a horse show as an amateur owner. So don't ever don't ever show there." Or when you get to the Olympics, you don't have to worry about it. They won't protest you because then we'll protest them. And everybody will get caught. So nobody's going to do that. And it was just, it was a conspiracy of silence. And the people that were running the U.S. Olympic Committee and the International Olympic Committee, they had no idea what was going on. They just said, well, we're all everybody's uh, ladies and gentlemen here of means. And we just do this for the, you know, just because the the glory of sport and all this. And we're saying, yeah, but we're out here in the scuffle trying to train good enough to win a gold medal. So it's a very it was a very funny time to uh, be involved but anyway that that led me to virginia, which i've I've been in Virginia since early nineteen seventy one uh until the present day and both Gail and I say now that mm, she support Gail she has moved ten times in the first ten years we were married, but when we moved to Virginia, she felt as if she'd moved home, so we've been here ever since um and that led me up to, now I had sort of a training uh, base, and I had a horse who was still pretty sound, Kilkenny. And so that's that's when I set my sights on riding again in 1972.
1: And now on to Karowicz. Can you talk about him and how he came into your life?
0: In the, in the summer of 71, uh, we had a new coach, Jack LaGoff, who was not really that... He wasn't that happy with me, and he wasn't that happy with Kilkenny. Uh, He was looking for uh, younger riders that he could train the way he wanted them. And Kilkenny had to go his own way, and Jack didn't like that. Uh, But anyway, we went up and we trained in Canada that summer as a team. Uh, and did the Eastern Canadian Championships, a big three-day event. That, that what happened, but Bromont essentially took over in the seventies from from the uh, Angus farm there outside of Montreal. And then we went to uh, went into training in England in the summer of 1972. I rode Kilkenny there and retired him there. Uh, Kilkenny's one, the only. There are only three horses that ever did three classic uh, Olympics, uh, and these are classy. These were twenty-two mile tests. Uh, Kilkenny Grasshopper, both Irish horses, and a Russian horse named Paquette did did three Olympics, uh, which was kind of feat, and it also I beginning when he arrived in 1967 i had a wonderful horse to ride but i remembered what it was like to be a hayseed with an appaloosa and this was the only horse i had and i was i was very protective of him I used him carefully. I worked him on good footing. You know, I, I really used my head. And looking back at, at the actions of a 22-year-old kid uh, who basically had been riding around in Kansas and Colorado, I was pretty shrewd about that, I must say. Uh, and Kilkenny retired sound. Kilkenny didn't know how to pronounce butazolidin. They had not invented it until 1970 we didn't we didn't know about the use of anti-inflammatory so we had to we had to keep them sound by natural means uh and I was able to now 73 through uh 77 is was a really oblique period for me because I went 6 years and I never won anything above the preliminary horse trials level I had an endless, endless succession of horses that were almost good enough. And when you're trying out for the Olympics or the World Championships, almost good is not good enough. Um, And I had, during that period, I had developed uh, a very active eventing program, certainly one of the biggest in the country. And I was at, in the spring of 1977, I had a student at Badminton. And so was over there and I was watching the first day with Lars Setterholman, who had uh helped me uh, in nineteen sixty-eight get ready for my first badminton. And I was very fond of Lars, he's a wonderful horseman. And we were standing in the uh the Duke of Beaufort's stable yard. The the vet check used to be held there in the stable yard. It got it drew such a crowd. Now you see the pictures out in front of the main house. But before that, it was a much more intimate. Uh, the horse that walked around the outside of the square, and then one at a time, you jogged up and down the strip, and usually everybody passed. Um, and I was standing up against a rope with Lars, and this big brown, very, very dark brown, mealy-nosed horse, no white, came by, and I saw him coming, and I thought, what a walk on that horse. Holy cow. I mean, he had this wonderful, smooth, flowing, head-bobbing walk, and he walked up next to me, and he stopped and turned his head at me, and he I really, I don't anthropomorphize much. I, I use human terms to describe horses because humans can relate to that. But, but horses are not human. And this horse looked me in the eye for a long period of time and the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And he looked at me and, look, and he didn't move, he didn't flick, he just looked at me. And the groom tugged on the shank to walk on and he didn't follow. And she looked back and spoke to him and tugged him rather sharply. And he walked on with her. And I grabbed, Lar- Lars was talking to someone else. And I grabbed his, I said, who is that? And he turned and he looked and he said, oh, that's Kerouich. He's a wonderful horse, but you'll never buy him. And I went, oh, okay. And I thought to myself, what, what an experience that was. And I watched him go, of course, that weekend. And he was wonderful. Uh, he had one Burley. Uh, no, he went, he, yes, he went to Burley in, I think, the fall of 75 and won it as a six-year-old. So, the yeah, the horses were a lot younger in those days. They didn't have to be as technically proficient as they do now, uh, which was part of it.
1: Who was riding him?
0: Uh, a lady named Allie Patterson. And she comes back into my story now because now it's the late summer, early fall of 1977. Uh, the amateur rules were still in force, but another crazy rule was that the owner and the rider had to have the same nationality as of <coughs> the first of the year in order to be able to compete for the team. So I had between the summer, fall of 77 to, to the end of December to find a horse to ride, and I, I was, it was not looking good. So I was 35. I was knew I was at the height of my physical powers. Um, and I didn't have a horse that was good enough. And it looked like I wasn't going to, which probably meant my career was over because I really couldn't see another four to six years of of slogging away with that dream of riding in the Olympics or World Championships again. And I called Lars home that fall and i said lars i'm looking for horses for students i need a horse like this and i've got a small girl like that and he said yes yes we'll find you something come on over because i had been uh somehow supplementing my income by dealing a little bit um uh, because my expenses don't you know i wouldn't take a fee but my expenses would be sizable which is <laughs> it's another another Anyway, I had I had and and I had these horses to find. And he said, "Well, oh, by the way, I've just hung up with Carewitch's owner, and Alley Patterson is pregnant, and they're going to sell him." And I said, "Well, call them back and tell them that he's bought, pending pending uh, veterinary exam." And once again, a horse that I had never thrown my leg over arrived in my barn. And I have to say, I was thrilled when I got a leg up on Kilkenny. When I got on Kerowich, I felt as if I had slipped into a glove, the way a hand slips into a glove. He was very, I'm I'm short-legged for my height. And Kerowich was quite tall. He was 16'3", but he was very narrow. And so I fit around him easily. And I just I had an instant partnership with him also, as well as with Kilkenny. Well, I say instant partnership with Kilkenny. I had some rough weeks with him until I gave up on the training system uh, that was in use at the time, at at the team. Uh, and Kerwich was my best friend from from 1978 at the World Championships. Uh, I rode him at badminton. I was fifth at badminton in 79. Rode him at the... Uh, uh, 1980 alternate championships in Fontainebleau, and then I was on the exploratory team. The world championships in in Germany in 1980 were in 1982, so we went over in 1981. And uh, Kerwich broke his coffin bone. He jumped. He he misread a bank. It's the only jump he's ever misread in his life. And he he was feeling so good with himself. There was a uh, there was a one stride bank that you just jumped up a square bank, took one stride and jumped down, made a turn and jumped some kind of a hut. It was very simple exercise, big but simple. And he jumped all the way across, and he hit his uh, hind coffin bone. Uh, up against the retaining log on the far end because he misread it, and he didn't. He didn't fall. He just touched ground. And said, "Oops, sorry, boss," but he struck it just right. Our team vet said that it was unusual to break it that way, uh, and that the angle had to be just right. Uh, and he jumped two more jumps for me, with and before the before he really started to change his his pace, and I pulled him up, and that was. Um, uh, that was really the end of his competitive career. He came back in the, in the summer of eighty four, spring and summer of eighty four, and I rode him a couple of times. And then he tied up, and I I called Jack and I said, Jack, I'm going to retire him now. And Jack didn't he went, oh, don't do it, don't do it yet because we can't use him. I said we we wouldn't be able to use him anyway. Uh, you know we've we've got to, and and he he stopped and he caught himself sort of and he said you're right you're right you're right you never you you don't squeeze the lemon t- until it's dry and that and he he went along with me uh so those were the two i had a lot of horses but those are the two great horses uh in in my life um then that's 19 uh uh, that's 1981, and now I'm looking at uh, what do I do next? Do I continue doing this? I was really enjoying the the teaching and the coaching that I was doing here. We had bought a little farm uh, now at Fox Cover, and uh, some friends that I had made uh, up at the Radder Hunt Club called and said the the young lady that's riding for us Uh, doesn't want to keep doing that. Do you want the ride? And I said, sure. Uh, And this was Dick and Vita Thompson, who became my owners now for the next three years, because I agreed to stay on uh, to try and find them some horses to to ride in 84. And so uh, I tried their horse and he he wanted a very good horse. So I, I rode him in one event and I called them. I said, I'm really sorry, but this is not the horse of your dreams. If you're thinking about, you know, Badminton and Burley and, uh, Kentucky, we had Kentucky by that time. I said, he's no, this one's not going there. And they said, okay, well go find one. And I said, well, I don't know where to start, but I will. And at Essex was, the original Essex was going on uh, this 1981 and an English girl was over there judging, limped up to me and said Jimmy I've broken my leg badly and I can't ride my horse anymore Uh, and this was Judy Bradwell and she had a horse named uh, Castle and Castle had won Aachen the year before and everybody in the world wanted to buy the horse and uh i had i hadn't even thought and she hadn't told anyone yet she said i could not bear to watch him go with anyone in england but i know that you'll take care of him and i called the thompsons i said listen i've never i'd never seen the horse much less ridden him uh and and they said Go for it. I mean, they were the most wonderful owners, uh, as well as wonderful people. And so Caswellan showed up, and I won Radner, which was a big deal in those days that fall. And um, he he was in many ways the most talented horse of any horse I had, and he didn't always show up for work. He was the most mercurial temperament. And I think these days, I wonder if he didn't have kissing spine, if he didn't have some, you know, secret little bone fracture that would act up on him because he would go wonderfully, wonderfully well and then he would just blow up. And he he picked... He picked one of the selection trials to blow up, and he really blew up, rearing in the dressage, I mean, the whole story. So I knew I was in trouble, and then he uh, popped an abscess just before they named the team, and that was it. So I went to Los Angeles, I was a non-riding reserve, because we'd gotten him sound again. He stepped on the plane in, at JFK Sound and flew out to Los Angeles, and he, and he was hopping lame when he came off. He had another abscess. So it was obvious I wasn't, I wasn't going to ride. I did retire after that. That was 1984. And in the spring of 1986, uh, another family, the Firestone family, called me and said, uh, Karen Lindy, later Karen O'Connor, is riding in the world championships at Gawler, which happened in the spring because of the uh the 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 change in the year you know their christmas is in, in the middle of our summer as it were uh and she can't ride our horse at uh kentucky would you take the ride on him and again this was a horse i'd never ridden called the optimist and he'd been bought for their son to ride and their son didn't did not suit this was a great big 17 hand uh very round strong bodied irish horse uh, again, no markings, mealy nose brown, very pig-eyed, very thick-eared. He was a very dumb-looking horse, and several riders, including Karen, had ridden him and just hated him. He was quite a jumper. He was very fast. He was very athletic, uh, but he, Karen had ridden him at Kentucky, and he'd had a fall, and she came back the next spring with enough bit to where she could hold him, so she had to stop all at the same fence. And so now it's 1986 and they gave me the ride on this horse. Uh, and Birdfires till told later, he's, he, he laughed and he said, you know, Jimmy, he said, I, I knew that you liked this horse because when I called you about riding him, you said, sure, you'd be glad to ride him, but you wanted 10% of the prize money. And I thought that showed a lot of confidence in him. So we, we felt good about it. Um, and I started riding him the first of the year. Karen was off in training, and I thought, "I'm wrong. I I can't ride this horse. Nobody can ride this horse." And I fought with him. and wrestled. He wouldn't stand a bit. He was he was just awful to ride. And I was teaching one morning and he, I have an indoor arena connected to the barn. So the horses on the inside stall, they can see into the arena. And I had noticed that he would listen to my lessons. And if I raised my voice, he would jerk his head up and he'd probably, and he kind of smile and say, whoa, Jimmy's really getting after her, isn't he? And, and then he'd, <coughs> he'd kind of relax and just watch, but he, he, he was intrigued with this. And I walked out, I finished a lesson, and I walked out up that aisle, and you have—you really have to wonder about these things, and he was grazing, he was eating his hay, and he heard my footsteps, and again, he looked up, and he looked right at me, and he was as smart looking a horse as you could imagine, and I looked at him, and my eyes almost bugged out. Because this wasn't the horse that I was used to looking at, who was a very sullen, droopy face, droopy eared, didn't look at you, didn't really respond to you. And he looked right at me, and he, for like two seconds, and I could see him go, uh oh. And he drooped and looked away and dropped his head and avoided eye contact. And I, I walked on past and I said, I saw you. He, he was Irish and he was so smart that if you tried to make him do something, he would just amuse himself fighting. But he knew what to do. If you would let him do it, he would do it very happily. And I got along with him fine after that. Uh, and I just, I wonder what would have ever happened if I'd walked out the other aisle. And not had that uh, because he did that was unusual. He wouldn't usually look at you. Uh, he was a very sullen appearing horse, but he really wasn't. He, he liked his job and he liked his jumping. He certainly liked his galloping because uh, again, as with Kilkenny, you you really had to let him. You had to let him select the pace, and then you would tell him when he had to slow down. But if you tried to hold him all the way around, you couldn't do it. He would just run on you. So um, I, I rode him at Kentucky in the spring of, of 86, and I won there, much to everyone's amazement, because he didn't have any kind of record. Uh, and that time, then I did retire.
1: And you mentioned two of your coaches were Bert DeNemothy and Jack LaGoff. Uh, what were they like to train under, and how did they influence your riding?
0: Uh, DeNimothy was always the the coach of the show jumping team. And so he was more of a role model to me uh, and a source of information. Um, but I took very few direct lessons from him uh, because that was not the way the, the Gladstone was structured. I mentioned briefly Stefan von Vichy, who was also Hungarian uh, and coached the eventing team from... 63 to 67 and he was very successful but all of the riders finally uh, myself Mike Plum Michael Page Kevin Freeman all of us just kind of drifted away that we knew Uh, Kevin Freeman later on said well he said the one thing we learned from Stefan was that any system beats no system but that if somebody had a better system than you, they were going to beat you. And other people were developing better systems. So that's kind of where we were. Joe Lynch came along uh, short-term because he had other, other plans. And the team then, when we went to Badminton in the spring of 68, you're asking about influential coaches. Uh, Bert was very definitely influential and uh, my next real coach was Lars Setterholm, who I mentioned briefly talking about Carowage. Uh Lars was a genius. He was a genius instructor. He was a good horseman. And he made you see the world through the eyes of the horse. When he walked the cross-country course with you, you had a movie in your mind of how your horse was going to react to certain things to light and dark to changes in terrain changes in footing changes in in incline shape of the fence construction of the fence Lars had a genius way of of describing this to you so that when you went out on course you already knew what your horse was going to be thinking at various places it was really a, it was a marvelous marvelous experience uh, the next, that was in the spring of 68. And of course, Joe Lynch came along. And as I said earlier, he was a marvelous horseman. Um, uh, but he had a very antiquated riding system. It was a 1930 British cavalry, uh, riding system that he taught. And, and I did not really copy much of that, his intuition about horses. And, uh and his solutions uh he was he had been a dealer after world war ii and so like johnny russell he had a lot of he had a lot of quick answers he could he could get uh he could get any problem horse going right now and it the problem was he'd fix it but he wouldn't fix the root cause he would just fix the symptom and then Two weeks later, you'd be back with a different symptom because you hadn't fixed the root cause. And he'd fix that symptom, and it would work. And you could get to a competition and have your horse come up with a new problem the day before, and Joe Lynch would have the answer. And that was a very interesting guy to work with, uh, to watch them work. Uh, But I would not say that Joe was as influential to my thinking as Lars. And then, of course, along comes Jack Lagoff. And Jack was a genius horseman, genius instructor, and he was a tough guy to be around because he was military. And he he understood the fact that you weren't paying his paycheck. The team was paying his paycheck. He worked for the team and he produced for the team. Uh, and I, I think some people never really understood that about him, that they thought he had favorites or not. Jack had a favorite. And the favorite was Jack, and you were you were just a, you were a cog in his machine, uh, and he, we immediately butted heads because he wanted me to go to the Pan American Games in some place in South America, and the team. Wanted. They wanted to split the difference. The Olympic Committee wanted them to send all their people because they were trying to promote the Pan-American Games as a training ground of future Olympians. And the USET didn't want to have to spend the money to fly 15 horses to Cali, Colombia, which is where they were. Uh, so they were going to send Frank Chapeau on San Lucas. They were going to send me on Kilkenny, and I forget who they were going to send. I think Hilda on something, Hilda Gurney. And all three of us said, you got to be kidding. We're not going down there. We're not going to ship a nice horse down there to run under bad conditions because in those days, the organizational skills were not well developed around the world. I mean, Burley and Badminton knew how to run it. And that was about it. Uh, And any any other time you went to a big-time classic event, for example, it was going to be chaos. I found out in 1970 what my results were on speed and endurance day at about a quarter till eight that night. Because the scoring was so complicated and it was all done by hand. And you had to compute all of these sums and you'd screw up and they'd have to compute. The, it was terrible. It was way too complicated. Anyway, um, that that was the the way that was back then. So, Jack, of course, was under pressure from the team to to send his guy, and I said, "I'm not your guy." Well, I was the only rider that had a horse up and working, because after after uh, uh, after 1980 uh, 1968, the team disbanded. There was no team. There was no event. There was nobody at Gladstone, and Jack talks about arriving. in in late 1970 and going, so where where are the horses? Oh, they're all turned out. And Foster and Plain Sailing were turned out. Uh, I think Shallan had been retired and Kilkenny was down the road in Virginia. And I wasn't about to ship him. So Jack and I had, we had harsh words about that. And I said, I'm sorry. He said, well, this will affect your chances of making a future team. And I said, well, if I don't have a horse, I won't make the team anyway. So that's a moot point. Boom. So we hung up as we as we went along jack i I realized what a good rider and trainer Jack was, and Jack realized that he had someone that was not afraid of the work and wanted to win, and he appreciated that and as the longer we worked together, the better friends we got to be. But it never crossed my mind that I would get an edge because I was friendly with Jack never crossed my mind, I knew better because he would have cut his grandmother. Up with a chainsaw, if there was a gold medal on the other side. That was that was just him, uh, and he. You get a sense of that. He wrote a book. Uh, his memoirs came out posthumously. Horses came first, last, and always. And that was that was that was Jack. But he was tremendously influential in my thinking. Um, other influences, obviously, Bill Steinkraus. I just I think he just hung the moon when it comes to talking about show jumping and the training of horses uh, and George Morris's influence on equitation you know has been so pervasive in the industry um, and all of those all of those theories and thoughts really go back to my father's coach harry chamberlain so it's it's been interesting watching watching all that develop, but I was really lucky with the with the coaches that i had when i had them
1: thank you for listening to practical horseman's podcast you can read many articles by jim at practicalhorsemanmag.com in addition to jim's bonus podcast episode next friday upcoming conversations are with the intercollegiate horse shows associations bob cachione and peter cashman stable manager extraordinaire leave good and eventing olympian boyd martin i'd really appreciate your feedback so if you have time please rate and review the show You can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.